Okay, so just as a review, uh, the first point in, in knowing God and fellowship is obedience to his word. Uh, in fact, the very first act of obedience in knowing God is the same for all. It's, it's vital for all of us. And of course, that is being obedient to the gospel. Romans chapter 10 verse 15 says, And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. I don't have any more. Excuse me, but this is where we left off, in case you were wondering. Okay. 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 And so, um, knowing God must begin with salvation. It must begin with salvation. And I'll even go as far as this, and I think you guys might agree with this. I hope you do. Uh, this salvation is also dependent upon what you know about Jesus. It's also dependent upon what you know about Jesus. That's very, very important. Paul continues in Romans 10:16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For as Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report. Unfortunately, in this day and age, there's a lot of confusion about who exactly is Jesus. And it's this aspect of what you know about Jesus that is so important in regards to salvation. In regards to salvation. Not everyone believes what the Bible teaches about Jesus. And I gave you a little bit of that last week when we got together. And not everyone has believed this report that Paul was talking about. If you remember, we were looking at Mark chapter 8, and uh, Jesus asked his disciples, who, who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're a prophet, and some say you're Elias, and so forth. Everybody had an opinion of who Jesus was. And so he asked him, but whom say ye that I am? And that's an important question to answer. Whom say ye that I am? And of course he says, thou art the Christ, the Son of God. That's very, very important. It's very crucial for these men to get right. It's very crucial for us today. Tragically, in America today, like in the day when Jesus came the first time, there's a lot of confusion about who Jesus Christ is. And it's our knowing this Jesus, or knowing about Jesus, that it's so crucial for us if we want to go on and know God. And like I said, a lot of people, people have different opinions about who Jesus is. And what they believe or think about Jesus. And um, I'm going to tell you something. Some of the things that people believe about Jesus will not lead to salvation. It will not lead to salvation, much less a genuine fellowship uh, with God. You might re- remember I cited a, a particular poll that showed that a lot of people in America believe in a historical Jesus. In fact, most people believe in a historical Jesus, even though there are some who don't, saying that there is no real proof in history of Jesus, but there really is. There's a lot of proof. Uh, but not necessarily that Jesus was God. And as I pointed out, and this is really a, a, a tragedy, uh, 67% of the 20-something generation, uh, they do not believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. They don't believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. Practically an entire generation is being raised up with this misconception or this misunderstanding about Jesus. And they're, they're in this darkness. They're in this confusion about Christ. And honestly, I believe that the churches that are supposed to emulate Jesus Christ, instead of presenting an entirely biblical Jesus, they're preaching a different Jesus. And I'm thinking that's that's probably the, the main problem that's going on in this country of ours. Now, we're not preaching the right Jesus. We're preaching a different Jesus. And this causes all sorts of confusion. And the same thing was going on in the Apostle John's day as well. Because he was encountering the very same thing during his time, there was confusion about who this Jesus was and what what was he here for and what did he do. And due to the influence of these false teachers who were the heartbringers of the modern-day Gnostic revivalists of our own time, uh, they were undermining the faith of many people. 
undermining the faith of many people. Again, I'm going to say this again about 1 John. When you read through 1 John, that's one of the things you have to keep in mind. John is writing to warn the people of these seducers. And you can't read through 1 John without seeing that. So that's very it's a very important aspect of 1 John to understand this. And even Paul in his day, he... Um, he came across people that were like this. Uh, I think Pastor Brian, I think it was just last, maybe it wasn't last Sunday, a couple of Sundays ago. But he, he quoted this verse out of 1 Timothy 1.18. He says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which, which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And I think what these guys were doing was saying that, uh, I think it was that Jesus Christ wasn't risen from the dead. And so when the Apostle John wrote his gospel, because this is what he was facing in his own day, he wrote his gospel according to John... Uh, with two purposes, really, I guess. One was evangelistic, right? To tell, tell people how to get saved. But the other aspect of John's gospel is also what, what you would consider apologetic. Apologetic. So on your study guide, John informs us that the purpose of his writing the gospel of John is that we would believe on Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world and the Son of God. So I think that's page three on your study guide. I think it is. John informs us that the purpose of his writing the Gospel of John is that we would believe on Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world and the Son of God. God come in the flesh. That's what he says in John 20, verse 30 through 31. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So there you see the two themes or the two purposes of John's gospel. One evangelistic and the other apologetic. You can't help but read through John's gospel and know that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. Unless you willingly refuse to see it. So John wrote it evangelistically to show us how to be saved and then apologetically. Because it's important that we know and believe about the one whom God had sent to save us. John 1.14 says, And the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And it is this very fact about Jesus that's being denied today. Being denied today. Now John's gospel was written approximately 45 to 50 years after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And in a very short period of time, he, he was dealing with these seducers. And these antichrists who were denying that Jesus Christ, that God had come in the flesh. And now some 1,909 years after the resurrection, we're still dealing with the very same heresies, the very same lies, the very same seducers. Let me tell you something, folks. The devil, is you have to say this about the devil. He's unrelenting in the propagation of his lies. He's always busy. He never rests. He's always busy. He's always on the job propagating his lives. So it would do well for us being born again sons of God to watch and pray and to hold fast to God's word. Now, it's just, you know, it might be odd for us to hear this kind of stuff. You know, we, we, I think we belong to a pretty decent church, a good church. I know that our church holds to the Bible as God's word, as God's revelation to man. I know we hold to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know we hold to all those things. But you know what? Our church 
is really becoming the exception to the rule. It really is. And I'm not trying to elevate our particular church above another church, but I'm just telling you that we have to be very wary. We have to be very careful, especially about this question of who Jesus is. John writes here in 1 John 4, 2, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. That's very clear. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. That also is very clear. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. It was in the world in John's day, and guess what, folks? It's still with us today. It's still with us today. So John is writing to those who know this about Jesus, and I hope I'm speaking to you who know this about Jesus. That Jesus indeed is God who's come into flesh to be our Savior, to die on that cross, and through him we have everlasting life. And being born again, we are now called the sons of God. In John chapter 6, Jesus had just finished his discourse about being the bread of life. And there were some who were following Jesus that when, he, when they were listening to him, saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, I mean, that was pretty hard stuff for these guys to try to get their minds around. And what happens? They stop following Jesus. They stop following Jesus. And when Jesus turned to the remaining 12, he asked them, are you also going to go away? Will you also depart? And that's when Peter spoke up. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So on your study guide, it is this very confession of faith of who Jesus is that sets the true Christian apart from all others. It is this very confession of faith of who Jesus is that sets a true Christian apart from all others. Folks, just because somebody calls themselves a Christian doesn't necessarily mean that they may be a Christian. Because what they believe who Jesus is determines that. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in the glory. Do you believe that? I hope you do, because your, your salvation is dependent upon that. If one is denying the plain truth about Jesus Christ and who he is, and as he has been revealed in the Bible, then I'm going to say you're not obeying the gospel. Because knowing who Jesus is is very, very important in, in obeying the gospel and knowing what the gospel is all about. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul writes to the Galatian church, he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, then that ye have received, let him be accursed. It's not faith in Jesus Christ who was a great moral teacher that's going to get you saved. It's not faith in Jesus Christ, a martyr for a great cause, that's going to get you saved. And it's not faith in Jesus Christ who is a lesser God or a demigod that's going to save you. You have to know what it is you know about Jesus. John fourteen six, Jesus saith, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's the only way. That's the only way.
So who Jesus Christ is is as critical to the gospel message as the message of his death, burial, and resurrection. I've already mentioned, you know, major denominations that are often called Christian. Jehovah's Witnesses and and the Mormons. They don't believe in a biblical Jesus. They don't believe in a biblical Jesus. And I've already covered some of that. You know, Paul spoke to the elders in Acts chapter 20. He says, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one night and day with, with tears. Now, I'm kind of concerned because I don't want you guys to think that I'm just a, a one hobby horse kind of guy, okay? It just happens to be where we're at in First John. But I'm going to continue to try to warn you of these types that are out there. It, any preacher or teacher who believes in God's word, if they're worth their salt, they're going to do the same thing. And I make no apology for calling names out. Because we need to know. We need to know. One of the, one of the problems with the church, the, the, the church age we live in and lay the sea is we have no discernment. Because we, we have forsaken God's word. We have no discernment. You know, I've made mention of the word of faith and the prosperity gospel preachers like Copeland and Paul Crouch, Robert Tilton and Joyce Myers. Those folks sell books in the millions. They're very popular. They have huge followings. But they don't preach a biblical Jesus. These influential false teachers preach that Jesus took upon himself the nature of Satan. That the Spirit of Christ left him at the cross when he gave up the ghost. He became an ordinary man. And that the man Jesus died, a lost man who went to hell and was tortured by the devil until he became a born-again man. In fact, Copeland calls him the very first born-again man. And then he was resurrected from the grave. That is not Jesus of the Bible, folks. This is the fables of unregenerate men and women. And it's this type of heresy that has infected over half the minds of Americans that believe that Jesus Christ was a sinner, just like you and I. Is Jesus Christ a sinner? No, he is not. No, he is not. There's also the Gnostic teaching among uh, Bible scholars who teach in Bible colleges that over time the various beliefs of the beliefs of the young Christian movement, and that's how they phrase it, they don't refer to it as the church or the body of Christ. They refer to it as a movement. Anyway, this early Christian movement, uh, they continued to change and grow and modify, accept and reject certain ideas about Jesus until it evolved into the Christianity or the concept of Jesus Christ that we have today. So, what, what's going on here? Darwinian philosophy has infiltrated these Bible colleges. And your faith is nothing more than ideas that have been evolved over time. What does that say about this? We might as well pitch it. We might as well pitch it. It's not what the Bible says. It's not what the Bible says. And these men, professing themselves wise, they become fools. 2 Timothy 3.5, having a form of godliness, but not in the power thereof, but 
of such turn away. If I had any of my kids going to those Bible colleges and I was a Bible believer, I'd yank them out of there so quick. So on your study guide. According to these religious Gnostic scholars, the early Christians did not see Jesus as the divine equal with the Father. So you might as well rip out John chapter 5. Who always existed and that this, this concept of Jesus evolved is your word in the ensuing decades after his death and apparent resurrection. Apparent is your blank. Yes, these men even question whether or not Jesus Christ truly rose from the grave. They also consider this an evolved concept of early Christianity. Bishop Joseph Sprague of the United Methodist Church claimed this is that the myth of the virgin birth was not intended as historical fact, but was employed by Matthew and Luke in, in different ways to appoint poetically the truth about Jesus as experienced in the emerging church. These are teachers in Bible colleges. Sprague, and I really love his definition of a, of a theological myth. Sprague defined a theological myth as not false presentation, but a valid and quite persuasive literary device employed to point to ultimate truth that can only be insinuated symbolically and never depicted exhaustively. That's doublespeak. That's saying one thing out of one side of your face and another thing out of the other. In one way, he's defending it, and then he's turning right around and denying it. That's your Gnostics. Yes, ma'am. You meant you were talking about some, some teaching about Jesus being a sinner. Right. Do they get that? Do they twist the verse that talks about he became sinner for us to do no sin? That's very possible, but what they're getting that from is, is teaching like from the, the, the faith, the word of faith folks who teach that Jesus uh, became, had, took on the image of a Satan, became, uh, had the character of Satan. Those people present Jesus as nothing more than a man who got his power from the Holy Spirit. Because their emphasis is all on the Holy Spirit of God. And so in their, in their, if you listen to their teaching, Jesus Christ is, is just an ordinary man that's, that's subjected to the same temptations and, and can sin like you and I. And it's only because of the Holy Spirit of God in his life, because that's what they preach. They preach the emphasis on the Holy Spirit of God. So that's where they get that. They pull it out of their hats to be polite, quite frankly. It's like this man here, this, this United Methodist Church, talking about myths and how Christianity evolved and it, the idea emerged. Yes, sir? How old is that statement? Not too old. Just a couple of years. Yeah, not too old. Yeah, just a couple of years old. So... So they use this Gnostic doublespeak. You know, they avow one thing and yet turn around and deny the same thing. In fact, Sprague insists that Jesus was born to human parents, Diane, human parents, and did not possess transhuman supernatural powers. So he's subject to sin, just like you and I. He's no different than you and I. You know what's behind that, don't you? They're elevating man to the status of deity while uh, de-evaluating Jesus Christ. That's what they're doing. Second Timothy, uh, Second Peter one fifteen says, Second Peter one fifteen. That's correct. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. For, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables, Bishop Sprock. I put that Bishop Sprock in there. 
We're not following fables, folks. We believe the truth. We believe the truth. These folks are the folks that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 3.7, ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. If anyone is weaving fables, it's these antichrists who deny the Lord God and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So there is a knowledge about Jesus that we must know and believe in order to be saved. A much less a knowledge we must know about Jesus Christ as our Lord to have fellowship with God. So on your study guide, you cannot have fellowship with God if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's very simple to understand, but very difficult for some people to grasp. You cannot have fellowship with God if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You just can't. First uh, John 2.22 says, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Amos 3.3 says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? No association with Christ in faith and salvation. You're not going to have association with Christ in your walk with God. And that's what John is writing about because of these Gnostic Antichrist false teachers. And they're preaching another Jesus and another gospel. Uh, in Jude's epistle, you know, it's funny, the, the, um, I shouldn't say it's funny, but it's interesting. In the New Testament, after the gospels, it begins with the, the book of Acts of the apostles. Well, Jude is the last epistle prior to Revelation. So you have the Acts of the Apostles in the beginning, and then you've got the Acts of the Apostates closing out the New Testament just before Revelation. And that's what Jude is writing about. So Jude verse 4 says, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and we're seeing that today, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're seeing that. I just quoted some folks. That's going to be the prevalent thing that we're going to see in our time. So on your study guide, there is coming a time when Bible-believing churches who hold fast to the sound words of God's Word will become a minority. History has shown that. And we're, we're not going to be any different. We're not going to be any different. Again, on your study guide... In the sequence of coming events, as the Laodicean church age comes to a close, the Bible warns of a falling away that I believe will precede the rapture of the true Bible believers who are members of the true body of Christ. So I think one of the things that we are going to see is we're going to, and I think we're seeing it now, we're going to see this falling away from the truth as people embrace these liars. Paul warns about that in his letter to Timothy. People are going to have itching ears. And there's going to be lots of folks out there willing to itch them. Do I have Second Thessalonians on your... Yeah. <clears throat> yep. Now we beseech your brethren by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. He's talking about the rapture. That ye be not so, be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us. See, already there's folks trying to interject their fables. As that, as that the day of Christ is at hand, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. Church will fall into an apostate mentality. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So I think there's going to be that falling away first, the rapture, and then that son of perdition. So on your study guide, the Apostle Peter warns of judgment upon the church. Not the judgment seat of Christ where the believer receives their reward, but one upon the earth prior to the rapture. 1 Peter 4.17 for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? 
And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Folks, that's why it's so important to hold fast to the word of God. Be a part of a church that holds fast to the word of God. Pray for a leadership that holds fast to the word of God. On your study guide. This judgment may be God's means to sift the wheat from the chaff. And also on your study guide, is it any wonder that the Lord told his disciples to watch and pray? Mark 13:33 Take ye heed watch and pray for you know not when the time is. You know we've been blessed in this country. But if you get outside this country and you go to other places where Christians are living under persecution and Christians are experiencing what we have yet to experience. That's why that's why we encourage you to go on these short-term missionary trips. It's a real eye-opener. You come back appreciating what we have here. So, on your study guide, the first point in knowing God in fellowship is obedience to His Word. And this obedience must begin with salvation. And this salvation is dependent upon what you know of Jesus. So if you're believing in a Jesus who's a good moral teacher for salvation, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Though he was a good moral teacher. Any questions or comments on what I just covered? Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. Okay, well, I'm, okay. Well, I, I see nodding heads, so I'm going to... I'm going to say you guys got it. Letter B. This knowing God, this being associated with God in fellowship, is for the believer to walk in sincere obedience to the truth. Sincere obedience to the truth. And we've talked to that ad nauseum. In other words, guys, be real. Don't, you know, don't play a game. Don't try to, you know, play church. Don't, don't be phony or fake about it. Be real. Be real. I mean, not everybody is called to be a Pastor Adams and, and pastor a church. You know? But we're all called to follow Jesus Christ in our own, you know, sphere where, on the job, in the home, wherever. Just, just be a sincere follower of Jesus Christ wherever it is, whatever you're doing. Just be sincere. Don't play games. Don't play games. You might fool me, but you're not going to fool God. You're not going to fool God. Apostle Paul exhorted the church in Ephesus. He says in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. So wherever you are, walk worthy of the Lord. Walk worthy, walk worthy of the Lord as a husband to your wife. Walk worthy of the Lord as a wife to your husband. You know, just... What does that mean? Well, get into God's Word and find out what that means. And live it. And live it. So here's... And this isn't on your sheet. I wish I would have put it on your sheet. But this, this, is, this is the point of this point. Having obeyed the gospel unto salvation... We now obey the gospel unto sanctification. Okay? Having obeyed the gospel unto salvation, we now obey the gospel unto sanctification. He's saved our souls. He's saved our life. Now we need to walk in that newness of life. That's obeying the gospel. 3 John 3 says, For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. So walk in the truth. Just walk in the truth. So on your study guide, the first step is obey the gospel and be saved. 
Okay? And I pray that all of you have done that. If not, I'd be happy to talk to you. And the second speaks to our, I said this already, sanctification. Sanctification. That's our conversation. That's the way we behave. That's the way we set our priorities in life. It's just who we are. Who we are. So next to the little people there, I think, at least on my study, uh, my, uh, so the next blank is the best way to know a person is to associate with that person. And the best way to associate with God is by a walk of obedience to his word. In other words, walk in the light as he is in the light. You want to come to know God? Walk in his word. Put your nose in the book. Read it. Study it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Apply it. You guys know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. That's the experience of the disciples with Jesus when Jesus was here, you know, first time physically. They they spent time with him. They spoke with him. They listened to him. They observed him on a day-by-day basis. That's what John says here in 1 John 1, verses 1, 2, 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was of the Father was manifested, revealed to us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with Son Jesus Christ. Father, you know, folks, we don't follow a fable. We're following eyewitness accounts. These are men and women who saw and touched and was with him. And they're telling us about him. These aren't cunningly devised fables. Some myth that evolved from some movement. John is giving an eyewitness account of Jesus Christ. John is the man who laid his head upon the chest of Jesus and he heard the heartbeat of God. Now think about that for a minute. That same heart that would be pierced by a spear. He heard beating. Why would a man like that lie to us? Why would not God preserve this for us? It's on your study guide. Jesus Christ was the most open person who ever lived. He wasn't operating from some hidden agenda. On your study guide, he had nothing to hide about his personality and that there was no secret sins in his life. No personal hidden agenda by which he manipulated others by. Here's your blanks. He lived truth and spoke truth. If Jesus was a sinner, don't you think these guys would tell us? If Jesus was a sinner, there wouldn't be a New Testament. It is important what you think about when you think about God. The Pharisees were prejudiced against them and they they spent their time trying to find sin in his life. How well did they do? No, they had to trump up charges to condemn him. Their whole trial was illegal. The whole way they went about it was, was contrary to their own law. Now, what does that tell you? That tells me they couldn't find anything on the man, so they had to um, go go about it in a very dishonest way. What's that? It does sound like politics today. It really does. If uh, JB were here, he would understand when I say it's the blight way. It's the blight way. In other words, it's very corrupt. It's very corrupt. 
So on your study guide. That's not on your study guide. It's okay. For many today, this association with Jesus is limited to a time and place. Time and place. Sunday morning in a church, depending on the church, maybe Wednesday as well. But for a lot of people, their relationship with God is, is, a, is a time and a place. Well, I, you know, I put my time in on Sunday. I'm good to go for the rest of the week. But some folks, this is also on your study guide. It may be more a religion about Jesus rather than a relationship with Jesus. And that's true even among folks who are members of a good, sound, Bible-preaching church. You know, they're content to come in and warm the pew and then go home. And I'm not saying anything about them not being saved. I'm just saying they'd rather have a religion rather than a relationship. On your study guide, others, for others, their relationship with Jesus is more, here's a 50-cent word, vicarious than actual. Vicarious. V-I-C-A-R-I-O-U-S. And that this relationship is more so with others in the church rather than with with him who is the head of the church. You know, there's some folks, um, they have a vicarious relationship to their pastor. You know, the pastor may be a very charismatic, very dynamic personality. You know, just one of those types of people that he just attracts people to himself. And so a lot of folks, that's, that's their relationship. It's, it's through this dynamic personality of a pastor. Other folks, it, it might be friends and family. This is where friends and family are. So it's all based on a social need or, or a relational relative related type of need. And I'm not downplaying any of this. Please understand, I'm not downplaying any of that because all of that is good and proper in its place. Believe me, you know, I, I appreciate a good, a good, uh, solid leader. I appreciate, you know, my family coming. I appreciate the friends that I have. I do. I appreciate all of that. But beware, there's a risk in this. What happens with our relationship with God if the pastor happens to fall into sin? What happens with our relationship with God if, if, if our kids decide to, to go to a different church? Or what happens in our relationship with God if, if our friends stop coming? Or mom and dad dies? You know, I've seen, I've seen the consequences. I've seen where some folks just stop coming to church altogether. Because they put all of their eggs in, you know, in the wrong basket. They put all their eggs in the wrong basket. Psalms 18.1 says, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength. In whom I will trust my buckler and the horn of my salvation in my high tower. That's where your faith should rest in. That's where your relationship should be founded upon. Between you and Jesus Christ. We have a friend whose husband, he was a very strong man of God. He was a very strong man of God. I mean, he was, he was solid on his convictions. And this man was this, this, his wife's strength. Uh, she really depended upon this man. He was he was her pillar. Well, the man died and went to and went to be with the Lord. Did this woman fall apart? Did this woman give up into loneliness and despair? No, she did not. As strong as a person as her husband was, as much as this woman depended upon her husband, her true strength was in the God of her husband. And I remember her husband telling her, you put your strength in Jesus Christ, not in me. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, not in me. 
And to this day, this woman is serving the Lord. To this day, this woman is serving the Lord. She is very involved in ministry. That's that's the thing, folks. Where, where is your faith at? Is it is it in a pastor? Is it in a friend? Or is it in the rock that Jesus Christ is? That's what John's talking about here. And again, it's not an issue of salvation. But where is your hope? Is it in a man or is it in the rock that Jesus Christ is? On your study guide. For some, this relationship is based upon service or work or the pursuit of knowledge rather than a pursuit after God. Their connection is more related to an involvement in an activity or in a ministry or an educational opportunity. There are some folks that they just love that new knowledge, kind of like the guys on Mars Hill. What was the blanks? Oh, the blanks again. Service and knowledge. You know, they're always going to the next class. They're always going to the next study. They're always going to this and that and this and that. So they fill their heads with all of this knowledge. But where is that knowledge at in their life? We used to use the analogy of the Dead Sea. All of the minerals and all of the water going into the Dead Sea, but is there any life in that sea? I don't think there is, unless it's some weird form of bacteria or something. I don't know. But we don't want to be bacteria. (laughs) And again, none of these things are necessarily wrong. None of these things are necessarily wrong. A church should be a place for social intercourse, a place to serve and minister, a place to learn about the Bible, a place to learn about Jesus. that's, That's what it should be all about. You know, we should not forsake the assembly of ourselves together. According to Hebrews chapter 10, 24 through 25, it says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So much the more as you see the day approaching. So on your study guide, according to Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 13, the local church is ordained, is your blank, by God for this very purpose. To edify, educate, train, fellowship, serve with the aim of fulfilling the great commission to teach all nations and make disciples. That's what the church is supposed to be all about. No, I'm not going to go there. So, on your study guide, the issue is not activity, but one of attitude. One of attitude. An established way of thinking or feeling about someone or something that is typically reflected in a person's behavior. Can't you tell a person's attitude by their countenance sometimes? By their behavior You know, uh, I think it's Corinthians that says, if a man, if a man love God, it's known of him. If you've got an attitude of love for God and love for people, they're gonna see it. People are gonna see it. Proverbs 23-7 says, For as he think in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. So on your study guide, how we think shapes what we become. How we think shapes what we become. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. How one thinks of God affects our devotion to God. Our devotion to God impacts our character. Our character will determine the quality of our fellowship with God. And our fellowship with God will renew our thinking of God. So you can kind of see that cycle 
How one thinks of God affects our devotion to God. Our devotion to God impacts our character. Our character will determine the quality of our fellowship. And our fellowship with God will renew our thinking of God. Now that's a good cycle to get into. (laughs) Not in the cycle that I find myself in. Boy, you're really stupid and you're no good and blah, blah, this and blah, blah, that. Right? You know that's true. You know that's true. So on your study guide, the heart of the matter is your blank. The heart of the matter is that we may lose the heart that matters. The heart of the matter is that we may lose the heart that matters. It is possible to be involved with all of these good things and yet neglect your relationship with Jesus Christ. One of the things that... uh, Pastor Brian is always talking to us about all all these all the leaders and the pastors. He says, "How is your devotional life? Are you spending time in God's Word, not just studying for a lesson, but are you personally in God's Word?" Because I'm going to tell you something: when you're preparing for this, and any any of you guys in here are teachers, you know this is true. If you're preparing for this and studying for this and this and that and that, that becomes the focus. And it's really easy to fall out of fellowship, even though you're studying God's Word. So you got to be careful. And I've said this before, you be jealous of that relationship. Not even allowing doing good things to rob you of that joy of fellowship with the Father and His Son. And I'll stop there. So understand, what you believe about Jesus is essential for your salvation. And our sincere obedience to the Word of God is essential in our sanctification. You have to be saved first, and then you have to let that salvation work through you and out you. Amen? Let's go ahead and close in prayer.